0: My name is Keith Beavers, and if gorp means good old raisin and peanuts, what happens when you put M&Ms in the mix? Like, gorp. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to Vine Pair's Wine One Hundred and One Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. And how are you? So here, in this episode, we will talk about the history of sparkling wine. What? That's crazy. It's just crazy. We're gonna have to get it. It's just sparkling wine history is. Just episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Jay Vineyards and Winery, makers of award-winning sparkling wine. Jay is so excited about sparkling wine, they have a dedicated Jay bubble room. Even the chandeliers are made from glass bubbles. And that's impressive, but just wait until you taste Jay's sparkling wine with chef-curated cuisine. To reserve your tasting adventure in Healdsburg, California, visit jaywine.com. Or, to order Jay's sparkling wine and other wine from this podcast, follow the link in the episode description to thebarrelroom.com. Okay, wine lovers, let's get weird. <laughs> well, actually what I'm trying to say is, let's talk about sparkling wine and the history of it. And just saying the history of sparkling wine, just just saying that out loud, gives me a little bit of agita, you know, a little bit. Because a lot, you know, a lot of things in wine, there's, unless we have documentation about things, Everything else is just kind of hearsay. And out of the murkiness of history, myths arise. Am I right? So, one of the most, one of the murkiest histories in wine is sparkling wine, because there are a lot of tales or stories that involve sparkling wine, whether it's down in the little town of Limoux in Languedoc or whether it's up in the northern part of France in the region of Champagne where there's a famous monk named uh, named Dom Perignon who did some things. The legend says he was blind. The legend says he created Champagne. The legend says that he was yelling when he invented it, come with me, I'm drinking the stars. A lot of this is wrapped up in myth and fiction, and when we tell the Champagne story, we'll definitely get into that. I mean, he had some real-life stuff that we'll get into, but... Before Champagne, as we've talked about in these past episodes, sparkling wine has been around for quite some time. So I did some digging, and I found some pretty cool things that I think tie into the history of sparkling wine. So this is going to be my approach to the history of sparkling wine. This is how... So Well, well let's get into it. This is Keith's history of sparkling wine. Fun. So throughout these episodes... I've mentioned that a lot of sparkling wine activity was really around the 19th century, but I also mentioned that there is documentation of sparkling wine being made all the way back to probably the 15th or 16th century. And if that's the case, um, the glass that is able to contain sparkling wine doesn't really come around until after that. So how is it that sparkling wine was around before the glass was created to actually house the sparkling wine? Well, this is the thing. When we've talked about champagne versus other sparkling wines across Europe, I mean, well, France and then also Europe, excluding Francia Corta because that was in the 1950s. One thing that's constant throughout all the sparkling wines that are not champagne, cava, or franca corta, and probably some others, is the atmospheres of pressure. A full sparkling wine, champagne, franca corta, cava, what have you, is usually about four to six atmospheres of pressure. That's, that's that, right? The, every other sparkling wine outside of champagne, we talked about the cremon of France in the last episode, those are often going to be between two and three atmospheres of pressure. So, not a lot of pressure compared to champagne and other sparkling wines. So, that shows me that there was wine being bubbled <laughs> by nature for quite some time. And because the atmospheric pressure wasn't that intense, people were able to sip bubbly wine. But before Champagne happened, which became a very intense focus on this particular style of winemaking, the majority of wines being made in France that were bubbly, like I said, they were called Mousseau, and then eventually Cremant, is because of that low atmosphere pressure. So I, we already, you know, there's a, there's an episode that I have about sparkling wine, but just to give a little recap here. What would happen back in the day is they would make still wine, and then because of lack of modern technology and understanding they would put these wines down into a cool cellar and that cellar and then spring would winter would come and then spring would happen that cellar would warm up to a certain temperature i mean it wouldn't warm up completely but to enough the, the yeast inside the bottles would wake up again continue to eat the sugar create carbon dioxide create bubbles create pressure boom goes the bottles but actually, boom doesn't go all the bottles because if you're making wine in this way, just kind of letting the fermentation happen, there's a chance that the atmosphere is not going to be as intense. So you're going to save the bottles that have not blown up <laughs> and then you're going to concentrate on those and what went right. And I think that's kind of how sparkling wine evolved over time until the champagne thing happened. And what I mean about that is just that there is a ton of innovation that happened in champagne due to their realization that sparkling wine was their future. So there's been sparkling wine for a long time all over the world. You know, it's, an, it's, 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 it's nature, so it's ancient, yet it was harnessed by humans who eventually turned it into something different. But none of this would have been possible if it wasn't for the glass bottles the bubbly wine goes into. The The atmospheric pressure of a tire is inside a glass bottle. And back in the day, the French did not have glass strong enough to hold these bottles. It was England, it was the English that made champagne and bubbly really happen. Yeah, that's crazy. Bear with me. The Indian subcontinent, which basically is Bangladesh, India, and Bhutan, has been producing sugar since antiquity at some point cultivation of the sugarcane plant spreads through the Khyber Pass in what is now modern day Afghanistan somewhere around the 5th century CE the people of the subcontinent indian subcontinent figure out how to transform this cane sugarcane juice into a crystallized form this makes it much easier to transport and much easier to store so now trade routes are opening up with this product In the local language, the the Devanagari language, this product is called Khanda, K-H-A-N-D-A. This is the source of the word candy. Indian sailors start introducing it into their trade routes. And then in the 12th century, crusaders brought back what they called sweet salt. It was sugar. People were getting really excited about this because for a long time honey was their only sweetener. So here comes this new thing, and it wasn't cheap, and there wasn't a lot of it. But people started to really dig it. <laughs> and then in Venice, which I was, I believe, was run by the Savoy family at the time, they bought a couple of villages in Lebanon and started producing sugar cane. And this became an actual the first distribution center for the sugar thing in Europe. But when things really popped off is when Europe takes hold of the island of Madeira and the Canary Islands. We've talked about those in the past. They set up sugarcane production facilities there. And this is in the 15th century. Because of its proximity to England, Europe and England specifically go absolutely nuts over this thing called sugar. Okay, put a pin in that for a second. In 17th century England, there was a man by the name of Robert Mansell, M-A-N-S-E-L-L. And he owned a bunch of glass factories in London and the surrounding area. And one of the things that he did, actually there was really a famous one in Newcastle that he owned. And instead of what was usually done as wood fire to make glass, his factories used sea coal. And in doing so, it made better, stronger glass. Fast forward a little further into that century, around the 1630s, you have a guy by the name of Sir Kenlam Digsby. And he's known as, well, he's sort of known as the guy who develops what will be the modern wine bottle. I mean, it was really weird and globular in shape, but then again, you know, it would evolve. But what he did is he ended up using wind along with coal to make it even hotter, and then he switched up the proportions. Again, a lot of this is in my glass bottle episode and even the, uh, the wine glass episode, but he had a higher ratio of sand to potash and lime than ever was before, and that is the three elements that helps make glass, and the result was green or brown instead of a clear glass. And right there... I believe right there is the moment in history where sparkling wine was made possible. And the I mean possible as in like as a product you can make and sell and distribute. I should say eventually distribute because this is a really cool fact I learned from Tim McCurdy, host of the Cocktail College podcast, when he was on a press trip in Champaign. They said that glass was for the wealthy and not a lot of it was being made so people would buy glasses glass bottles in england and they would sometimes you know stamp their family symbol onto the glass and they would use that glass over and over again meaning they would send the glass off to champagne to be bottled and then brought back empty it out by drinking it and then send it back again that's how it used to be I and mean, that's crazy also like They didn't have the wire cages yet that we're used to with sparkling wine. And for a long time, it was just leather and hemp string to tie it up so it didn't pop off. And our guy Digsby, he doesn't get recognized for what he invented until 1662. It's a long time. But 1662 is actually the next important date in my little history of sparkling wine because of a dude named Christopher Merritt. Two R's, one T. Remember when I said people were going kind of crazy over sugar because it was brand new? Before that, people would just use honey to sweeten things or even just chew on sugar cane to release the juice into their gums, I guess? But th- like, people were going crazy with it. And again, a bunch of rich people were going crazy with it because rich people were the only ones that could provide themselves with sugar and glass and all the other stuff. But there's a guy named Christopher Merritt... I think it was maybe Sir Christopher Merritt. I'm not really sure. But this guy, he was a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy. A lot of these guys back in the day, they had a bunch of money. They tried all different kinds of things. And one of the things that this guy did is he was playing with sugar and wine. And in 1662, he presents a paper to the Royal Society, which is the Society of Sciences in England at the time, a paper called Some Observations Concerning the Ordering of Wines. Don't understand why it was called that, but the important part of this paper was an observation he had where adding quantities of sugar or even molasses would make a wine sparkle. And this observation was possible because of the strength of the glass that at this point was available, especially to rich dudes like Christopher Merritt. So for me, that's kind of the beginnings of what we know today as going to a wine shop, buying a bottle of bubbly, popping it, hearing the pop, seeing the fizz, all those atmospheres of pressure. That's really kind of where it all began because the modern champagne era doesn't happen until well into the 19th century. So a lot of work was done from that moment with Mr. Merritt And then going all the way to Champagne. The thing about Merritt, Christopher Merritt, this is so cool because I don't know if you guys know, but England makes sparkling wine. It did for a very, very, very long time. Then they kind of stopped for a while. Not really, but it kind of ramped up as climate change happened. And in the southern part of England, just south of London, actually about two hours south of London, there are vineyards and one of those wineries is called Ridgeview. And back in 2005, when they were just kind of getting their their press up and kind of telling people, like, this is what's happening, there was an interview with the winemaker at the time. And it's very cool, and I think this is a good idea still. I don't know why we haven't talked about it since, but he hoped that sparkling wine from England would have a name to itself. And he wanted to call it Merritt after Christopher Merritt who wrote the paper. I think that's just so cool. It's like me, Keith Beavers, <laughs> in 2022, trying to make American sparkling wines have a name called American Sparklers. DM me, trying to figure it out. But it's, you know, Champagne takes it from there and they go through years and years of innovation. I mean, they, the the well, the the, the, the legend is that Veuve Clicquot invented the Poupitre, I think it's called, or the Riddling Rack, which is you Know it looks like a slab of wood with some holes cut into it on a diagonal, so the wines can go in there for riddling. Again, this is all in the sham or the sparkling wine episode. But the story goes that, um, the widow, the famous widow of uh, winemaker of uh, Vuf took a table and knocked the legs off and put it up slant and drilled holes in it, and that's how it all became. That's the famous story. I'm not really sure if that's true. There is documentation, though, that monks originally put bottles upside down in sand and then would riddle them every day. It's a whole thing. But they basically came up with that. They also were, and this is where Dom Perignon comes into play, is that the Abbey in which he was part of was a big center of activity for Champagne as it was figuring itself out. And one of the things that he did do is um, figure out the best Practices of press pressing the grapes. There's a really big, a really big deal in Champagne, pressing grapes. A lot of rules in place, and part of that is the work that was done in the Abbey. And a lot of that work is not. A lot of the limitations and restrictions and rules that are in Champagne are not in other parts of in other sparkling regions of the world. Yet these have these rules and restrictions have created standards at which the rest of the world will often use. And then of course. That's the traditional method. You know, that was the Champenois method. Then, of course, in the early part of the 20th century, Eugene Charmotte comes up with the tank method, which is a way of making sparkling wine in a tank with pressure. This is how uh, Prosecco is made. Again, listen to my sparkling wine episode to kind of get the whole details on that. But that's kind of where we are now. And it's just fun. It's so interesting that we, came, we got all this way Figured out all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, Prosecco is about five atmospheres of pressure, so the tank method can still produce the, the atmospheres that, you know, on that tire level. But I find it interesting that the term Petnat is very popular these days and that Petnat is all over the place, and Petnat is sort of the way sparkling wine was made before champagne. So it's amazing how it's all kind of come full circle. Huh. I don't know if you want to do a like one of the OG petnats, go get a Blanquette de Limoux we talked about in the last episode or check out some of the mousseau from Vouvray. Oh, and also still wondering about Mousseau du Bourgogne because if there is sparkling red wine from Burgundy, I can't stop thinking about it from the last episode. Just please let me know if you know. But that's it. That's my jam. <laughs> how did I do? that? That's how I see the history of sparkling wine. Because if you're getting murky with stuff and all these stories we could have talked for 45 minutes about, this is kind of my way of thinking, you know, sugar. <laughs> sugar becomes a thing. But before we could talk about sugar, we had to get glass being made and the, the strong glass. And then you know all that kind of is a fun way of saying, okay, there was a lot of activity going on. And all these different factors came in to make sparkling wine what it is today. And then Champagne's like, hold my flute? (laughs) Yeah, flutes weren't around at the time. Okay, well, that's another episode. This concludes our fun little series on sparkling wine. I'm sure I'm going to revisit it again. But get ready, wine lovers. The next six episodes, we are diving deep, deep into France. Get ready for Muscadet. It's coming next week. Talk to you soon. Vine Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vinepair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout-out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating vine pair and i mean big shout out to danielle Grinberg, the art director of vine pair for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast also darby seaside for the theme song listen to this and i want to thank the entire vine pair staff for helping me learn something new every day see you next week e and j gallo winery is excited to sponsor this episode of vine pair's wine 101 gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from every day to luxury and sparkling wines i mean gallo also makes award-winning spirits but you know this is a wine podcast so whether you're new to wine or an aficionado gallo welcomes you to wine we look forward to serving you enjoyment and moments that matter cheers visit barrelroom.com today to find your next favorite where shipping is available